who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Wander with us into a world of magic. Do you lack magic? Where old stories take on a new life and the world is teeming with possibilities. Well, for the last time, we're not kissing, Fritz. Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with. Okay, Gown. Let's do this. And reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. Ready for your next adventure? Then we'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. As you prepare the feast, we prepare for a feast for our eyes. It's episode 395 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. Yeah, releasing the show a little bit early this week, trying something different for the holiday weekend, so maybe you'll get a chance to, you know, enjoy the whole show over the holiday weekend. Maybe share it with some family. I don't know. Just just an idea. There's plenty of stuff you're going to be able to share with your family. As a matter of fact, Hannah has now premiered its final season on Amazon Prime Video. I'll be talking to creator David Farr about that. Also, Dermot Mulroney going to talk to us about what Carmichael's got going on for this season. And then... If you're maybe thinking about hitting the movie theater, the new Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City movie is out. Marina Mazepa joins me to talk about that as well. So that's going to be a really, really interesting conversation. Plus, the Hawkeye series is now out. I'll give you my review of that. And then we'll go to Netflix for a couple of shows. He-Man and the Masters of the Universe and Super Crooks. So plenty to talk about. Let's get things started and talk about Hannah. Season 3 with David Farr, creator, writer extraordinaire, is up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Yo, this is Greg Sipes, Teen Titans Go. You're listening to the Down and Nerdy, 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 Nerdy Podcast. Nerdy, Nerdy, Nerdy Podcast. This guy's the biggest nerd you ever met. The nerdiest of the nerds. The final push to take down U-Tracks is on. The final season of Hannah is now streaming on Amazon Prime Videos. Lucky enough to catch up with the executive producer and writer of the series, David Farr, and one of the actors on the show, Dermot Mulrooney, who plays Carmichael. But I want to start with David Farr, writer and executive producer, David, for fans of the show. In the season three trailer, we see that Hannah says that even if she got the life that she wanted, she wouldn't know what to do with it. Yet we see her make a very personal connection as well. 
Could we see a very different Hannah this season, or maybe from a different perspective? We do see a different Hannah. Uh, we see a, a Hannah who has earned her maturity to some extent. I think when I planned the television season series uh, as a distinct thing from the film, I knew I wanted to tell a, a coming-of-age story. I think season one, put very briefly, is childhood and the journey towards adolescence. Season two is adolescence and the journey towards becoming uh, a young woman. In, in season three, we, we begin to see, I think, a young woman beginning to realise that she can actually live in the world in, in its full existential sense. She can live in the world with responsibility to other people. I think if your Hannah is brought up, you know, in this very strange, somewhat twisted world of the forest with this man who claims to be her father. So it, for a while, for a long time, she only lives to discover who she is. But now I think she begins to understand uh, both in a romantic personal sense, but also in a political sense, that there are responsibilities to other people, particularly of her own age. And those two things together, I think, allow her to become a, a young woman and reach her maturity. Most definitely. And it's an interesting mix for sure, which is really cool. Adding really to the cast this season, to me, really ups the intensity and the intrigue. How much can you tell us about his character and how major of a role he's going to have this season? One of the key things I wanted to do in the in the third act, the final act, was to, re, was to genuinely satisfy the viewer's hunger to know what is Utrecht's. You know, we know it's an organization that created Hannah, but there are questions. Why? What is it? What's it about? What is this investment for? Why all these why are all these young women, these young trainees being trained for this for this purpose? And I, I think we genuinely answer the question. And the, the question is answered both in terms of the, the plot, but it's also answered in terms of who is actually behind it all. Uh, and without spoiling too much, we can say we can say that Ray Liotta is integrally connected to that. And what that meant for me as creator of the show is I needed a major player to come to the table. You know, when someone comes in this late in a show, you haven't got the time to fall in love with them in the same way that we fall in love with Hannah and with Marissa. We have to be we have to be right there with him. And he has raised us this. You know, he like a lot of film actors who are great. He just knows how to step up really fast and right from the first moment. He's, he's guns are blazing and to some extent. I mean, perhaps that's put the wrong phrase. He's, but he's absolutely committed to, to, to the role. It's, it's fully there. It's fully present. His, his scenes, I think, with Mireille are some of the most exciting of the stuff we've done, actually. He's an enormously enjoyable guy to work with, but he's tremendously instinctive. And that instinctiveness, I think, that, that sense of danger, that sense of uncertainty comes over. What, I, what surprised me and really pleased me is the level of, shades and colors that that he also brought some there's a lot of vulnerability actually and there's a lot of actually a lot of love in the character and that's really interesting and surprising but his primary energy of course is one of menace and uh, and that and at that i think he's pretty much unrivaled no doubt about it he definitely brings an instant presence to the show that's for sure and david it seems like a final showdown between hannah and sandy is almost inevitable given sandy's suspicions and things that we've seen so other than taking down Utrecht, do you feel like a Hannah-Sandy fight is something that fans are really hoping to see the most? I, I can't speak for fans. I, I know that I, I love writing Sandy. And in fact, when I directed the last two episodes of season two, some of my favorite stuff was directing Anya playing Sandy. I, I, I've always enjoyed, I don't know why, it's obviously something, some strange thing in me. I, I've always enjoyed the blonde, the kind of perfect blonde, who, you know, civilized girl who, who actually hides a real proper killer in her. She's absolutely brilliant at playing it. And it's a really good contrast with Esme, who's obviously literally darker and, and has a kind of much more complex, weird, internal, mixed up quality, which is what we desperately wanted Hannah to have. So I've always loved the contrast between those two, the apparently perfect schoolgirl who actually hides a psychopath and the very mixed up 
messed up kid who is the one we'd actually really love. So of course, yeah, I mean, you put those two together, you're desperate to see them reach their, their, their gunfight at the end as such. Oh, absolutely. Well, since you seem to be some good at teases, David, let's do this one. We don't see many happy endings on this show, but we did get to see one with Clara last season. Obviously, we don't want to spoil anything, but but can you tell us, is that the only happy ending we'll see, even if it's not one that fans might be happy about? I think what I like about where we're going with season three is that I think it doesn't it, it does satisfy certain basic desires to, uh, around things you might want to see, but it does it in surprising ways. It's very difficult to talk about without ruining things. But I feel that what was lovely about the Clara story was that it it, it was was happy for her. It was a genuine resolution, but it came at the cost of a deeply bittersweet feeling for Hannah, who was left alone. And so one person's happiness is another person's loneliness. I, I think what's wonderful about the ending of this season is that there is a similar counterpoint between different characters. One person's joy is another person's loss or pain or even death. And those things for me are, are, that's why I think this show is kind of on the more real end of the kind of action genre that we're in, is that we, we, we recognise the realities of life every step of the way, that nothing is ever fully sugar-coated, nothing is ever fully dark. For every bit of light, there is also a bit of darkness that creeps in, and that is just what life is, and that's what Hannah has to, has to learn. Most definitely. Well, we know who the major players are of the last two seasons in the story. Is there any character that might have a larger role or make a bigger impact this season than in the previous two? For me, the, the big new role belongs to Adam Bessa, who plays Abbas. Uh, one of the things I really wanted to explore in a way, and I was almost most interested and nervous about, was Hannah is now a young woman, and the notion of caring for someone else in a genuine sense, where I, you have proper responsibility not just for yourself but for someone else, and maybe for more than just one person, that I felt like there was a really... There was something really, really sort of interesting to, to explore, but it relied upon finding an actor who would absolutely uh, earn that attention and that, that, that interest from Hannah, that affection and potentially even that love. And he, he's just a magnetic performer. He's a French-Algerian. He is an extraordinarily charismatic guy. And from the minute he pitches up in episode one, I think the, the viewer are going to be very, very interested in him as, as she is. And their relationship is a very important counterpoint to everything else that's going on. And now we'll move on to Dermot Mulroney, who, of course, plays Carmichael. If you watched last season of Hannah, you can only imagine how interesting this season is going to be for Carmichael. Let's see if we, we can get him to tell us. How are you doing today, Dermot? Hey, good man. Thanks. How you doing? Good, man. Good. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I appreciate it. No, my pleasure. It's so, uh, such a good show. Happy to talk about it. No doubt about it, man. As a matter of fact, I mean, things didn't exactly end well for Carmichael last season. How much of a tough spot is he in as we get started in season three? I know. Hannah shot him, right? That's Yeah, not that's cool. not nice, man. <laughs> I know. And then right away, season three starts like two or three days later, and now I'm working for her? Now, nah, that wasn't part of Carmichael's bargain. What I mean is that because uh, of Carmichael's mistakes in season two, Marissa Vigler and Hannah worked together to use Carmichael to take his own program down. So um, he's he's really, as he was the puppet master maybe in last season, now he's the puppet. So it's a 180 degree turn for the character. And that was obviously a, a great challenge to play. And, uh, you know, the storyline just goes uh, goes like wildfire this year. He seems like a guy that really likes to be in control, too. How is that lack of control affecting him this season? It's got to be driving him nuts. Well, that's just it. I think he, 
even the first episodes, you actually see him fearful. Ultimately, that turns into desperation. So uh, later, later in the sequence of the episodes, um, yeah, um, his, his storyline is just one of those where it gets it gets worse and worse. But he's a trained spy, spycraft master, and knows how to lie to survive and do anything that it takes. So that's pretty intriguing to see Carmichael go through. Oh, no doubt about that. Now, it seems like on the surface, it seems like he's got no friends in this, but it seems like Terry's a very loyal uh, ally to Carmichael. He obviously hasn't told her what's going on, but do you feel like she could be an ally if he needed her to be? Yes, I think that's one of the most intriguing relationships in the story because they do seem like they're working together. But then I think the audience already knows from season two that maybe she has a slightly different agenda than Carmichael does. Terry Miller that Sherelle Skeet plays in the role. The the two of us had a terrific time working together because there was that intriguing relationship where they seem like colleagues and yet they're both uh, working, kind of working against each other without the other's knowledge. So ultimately Terry Miller's uh, character without giving too much away, of course, uh, winds up with being one of the few characters that actually has a moral center. So that uh, that's uh, also an intriguing relationship where one does and clearly one doesn't. So uh, thanks for asking about that part of the story. I think that's really cool. And then, you know, Terry becomes really key in our story later on. Oh, I can't wait for people to see that. So yeah. uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Dermot, but in all the t- film and TV projects that you've done, I'm surprised you've never worked with Ray Liotta until now no no i know i never did and i'd always hope to and i couldn't believe it when they added him to the cast now i also couldn't believe that carmichael wasn't the boss of the boss so they, they well, that was yeah, a, a surprise <laughs> surprise you're a middle manager but that didn't change how i played the character because you know he also has a hell of an ego you can see that even mm-hmm. how he lies his way through this and tries to manipulate so um all in all that i Ultimately, I only had one scene with Ray, but uh, really a highlight for me as, of course, uh, I'm such a long, long time admirer of his acting. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm sure Carmichael doesn't want to be. And and he's great in this show, too, man. He's really, really strong. Yeah, he really, really really is. No question about that. So we talk about how Carmichael doesn't really want to be in this position. But in a way, do you kind of feel like. This is a chance at redemption for him, or is he ultimately just just a Utrax guy? I think Carmichael's just a Carmichael guy, right? No, he believes in his program, and he knows Utrax is the right way to protect the future of his country. He believes it that much. But as much as he's a company man, his main concern, and it gets it really gets desperate toward the end of this uh, of this this season. Uh, his main concern is himself, and you'll see him uh, scratch and claw to to survive to survive it. Definitely. Now, I love the scenes that you have with Muriel in this season. We saw Marissa become more disenfranchised by Utrax early on in the series. Now, she and Carmichael obviously have a history. So, how would you say his opinion of her has changed from back then to where it stands now? Well, I, I think even in the first episode of this season, you see Carmichael. In an unusual light, he's actually in a state of fear around her. I got to say, too, I love that it's not clearly defined the character relationship between Marissa Vigler and John Carmichael. And I don't know if all of that is actually resolved, but you definitely just the way it's written 
and the way they edited it, there's something there. There's some connection. Is it a mentor? Is it something else? It never really defines it. So that's always fun to play as an actor. And of course, I'm with Mireille Enos, who's just brilliant in this role. Total transformation from the Mireille that I know is my friend to uh, Marissa Beegler, who's just she's an animal in this in this season. And it's uh, it's hella fun to watch. So with Carmichael being such a big part of the training program, I'm sure he has good instincts about all of the trainees. But knowing what he knows now, how do you think he really feels about Hannah? Well, I think he see Hannah's the one that proved that the formula was going to work. In other words, if you remember from season one, that the first batch of babies didn't make it except for one of them. Right. And so then season two, she emerges from the woods, a fully formed version of what he had designed. Then we learned that he, he started over and there's a whole program and a whole school full of them. Um, but so his connection to his, it'd be like the connection to your firstborn, right? He's known these women that are now of age to be sent out to go, uh, you know, assassinating people. But it's such a strong um, uh, relationship with that first success of his. I mean, Carmichael's ego is is has no bounds. That's part of what makes him quietly bizarre. So I've always thought that I was just so intrigued and I felt like a success because one of them, the one that got away, came back exactly as he had designed. Then, of course, she turns against him and things go really, you know, really pretty wrong. Till you find them this season, I'm actually working for her. So it, it, uh, it's a, a crazy plot twist. And this season brings a lot more action, running and gunning. They're jumping over roofs. They're flipping cars. It's, uh, it, it's, it's really amazing. One more for you, Dermot. Do you think Anything. fans of the series will actually maybe change their opinion of Carmichael when it's all said and done at the end of the season? Wouldn't it be intriguing if someone who you, you could sort of relate to at the beginning of season two where I joined, but then is revealed to be kind of, you know, a bad guy. Wouldn't it be cool if like by the end of the next season, people are actually feeling for him. So maybe mm -hmm. it turns even that way because the tables turn on him. So then I wonder if the emotional connection uh, character to audience changes too. We'll see if there's any kind of um, what empathy for the villain. That's always fun if you can get a little bit of that in there. But more or less, Carmichael, um, he, he, go, he goes pretty wild, too, um, just to save his own skin. No doubt about it. And there's plenty of tables to be turned this season. I can't wait for fans to see it. Dermot, thank you so much for the time, man. I appreciate you. You bet. Thank you, man. Thanks a lot. And if you've already loved the first two seasons of Hannah, this third final season is a very, very worthwhile conclusion to the series i will say that and it's there's plenty of it if you've already loved the show there's plenty of stuff that you loved about the show but there's also some new wrinkles that get added in whether it be from the new characters or just the storyline in general this is just such a well thought out well crafted show and final season that i really really think if you haven't yet you need to be watching hannah especially the third season which is now streaming on amazon prime video once again, thanks to Dermot Milroney and David Farr for joining me this week to talk about Hannah. Up next, it's time to talk to Marina Mazepa about Resident Evil. Welcome to Raccoon City. We'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. My name is Jenny Owen Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at BufferingCast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is April Goldie from DC's Doom Patrol, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. So you've seen her on a ton of stuff. Maybe you've seen her on So You Think You Can Dance, America's Got Talent. She's been in a ton of great movies. But speaking of which, I mean, it's a new era for Resident Evil. Resident Evil Ra- Welcome to Raccoon City going to be coming out in on November the 24th. And, oh, she's got a huge role in it. It's Marina Mazepa. How you doing, Marina? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. So you've done, like, a, a, a lot of work in the horror genre recently. I mean, you were in The Unholy and some other great things. Are you a fan of the horror genre or has it just been like the right roles at the right time? I think that's the second. (laughs) So I I love horror. I love watching horror movies. But when I am with my friends and we are having fun, so I'm not alone and I'm not getting freaked out. But I think the second version is like the answer to your questions. I just happen to be there. I think after America's Got Talent, I was discovered by James Wan and that's how I started my career. <laughs> Not a bad person to be discovered by, that's Not for sure. A person, I know. That's a good start. <laughs> You've also done some some good TV stuff though too. You were just a, you were just playing uh, the Echo in the Girl in the Woods series as well. How much did you enjoy your experience on that show? It was amazing. I definitely enjoyed the experience to be there and I got there like last minute. I got there through people that were, I worked with on Malignant, it was like last minute figuring out what I can do and how I can do it. And uh, when I read the script, I I realized like, oh my God, my character doesn't really do much because she, first she was uh, invisible. Second, mm-hmm. you could see her only through the reflection mm-hmm. and, and she didn't really move much, but then they adjust, adjusted and they expanded my role. So it was fun to play around and yeah, it was, great to spend some time in portland it was warm it was nice so 
You got to go to Portland when it was warm. You're so lucky. That almost never <laughs> happens. <laughs> so, it was funny. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So, of course, we, you know, your next big role is going to be in Resident Evil. Welcome to Raccoon City. Were you a fan of the franchise ahead of time, either the games or the previous movies? Or was it, I mean, what's it like to be part of such a huge franchise? I was a fan of the movies, and I'm a big fan of Mila Jovovich, <laughs> and she's Ukrainian as well. And she's a badass. I love her. But I've never played, like, the games. Like, I, I, I wasn't familiar with that. And when I found out that I was like I was being considered for this role, I that was so amazing. I was so excited. It was only my third movie, and it was in, right in the middle of the pandemic. I don't know. I just felt so fortunate. Absolutely. And I think that Resident Evil fans are going to be happy to have you too because Lisa Trevor is a big deal for anyone who plays the games. They know that. How much can you actually tell us about her role in this upcoming film and your portrayal and just being able to kind of expand on this character more, which is what yeah. fans have been asking for. When the producer sent me the offer for this role, I had no idea who Lisa Trevor was. I started researching and uh, reading and watching lots of, lots of books and videos, right? And I was fascinated by her tragic story. Upon the first impression, you can see that she... She has a very like terrifying aspect. She she's ape-like and she has elongated arms and she has shackles and she has this nightgown, right? And it's horrifying. But she also has a, like an aspect of sympathy and empathy. Her dad was an architect, the architect who created the Umbrella Corporation and when he finished his work, the Umbrella Corporation didn't want anyone to know about it. So they decided to kill his family as well. So they took her and her mom and they injected her, they injected them with two different viruses. Her mom died and she was basically the first experiment, the virus. So, and then she, for 45 years, she had been looking for her mom and she would kill all the imposters who tried to pass for her mom. Mm -hmm. And she put the, their faces and she, would, she made a mask out of their faces and she put that mask on her face. So that's the tragic story of Lisa Trevor. That is wild stuff. And we can't wait to see, I can't wait to see how that plays out. <laughs> So, I mean, I take a look at your, at your at your resume a little bit, and you've been doing ballet and dance since you were since you were tiny. So, did that experience actually help you for this role with maybe some of the movements and some of the not so normal motions that you'd have with this character? Of course. I mean, I think because of my contortion and dance experience, I had the chance to like start working in the movie industry, and that definitely helped me to play this role. Excellent, excellent. We've seen a little bit of Lisa's transformation from what's been released so far with the trailers and things like that and, and photos. So what was the process like in coming up with that look and working with the team on that? First, we already know Lisa Trevor, it's an, you know, like her look, She the look was established in the game, mm -hmm. uh, right? And second, since we were filming during the pandemic, it was really we didn't have much time to spend time with like 
developing the costume or like pieces of a prop, you know, like we had to be quarantined for two weeks before we started filming. And we, the rules were so like strict when we couldn't talk to, you know, be in the room with more than a couple of people. Mm -hmm. So because of that, we had a lot of things on the fly, I would say. So my shackles weren't really comfortable on my first scene. So we had to adjust them and change or like change the choreography or like, like things like that. But uh, it was definitely a fun process with, I think the production also were, was very open to my ideas, which was super cool. When I threw when I throw through some idea um, some ideas we would like adjust so many things including costume and props so that's awesome do you kind of feel like you said it was on the fly do you kind of feel like that kind of takes the pressure off a little bit and playing a role like this or being in a movie like this where you can just kind of relax and just kind of go for it sort of thing I'm the person who wants to be prepared and I was prepared in terms of like my ideas moves and I read a lot about her and I created a backstory and like emotionally all of that. So, and then I came on set and it was just a matter of whatever happens, happens, you know? (laughs) Yeah, it was exciting because uh, you work with the professionals was like top of the top, you know? So I wasn't worried that something will go wrong or I like will hurt myself or I definitely challenged myself a lot in this movie and I I've grown so much so I'm I'm so fortunate and grateful <laughs> yeah with the team that you were working with even on the fly things were going to be very very prepared yeah. so it's not quite as on it's not like me being on the fly doing something like, like like that or something like that so I'm sure that everybody was super super prepared as a matter of fact your director Johannes Roberts said in another interview that I saw Lisa Trevor yeah. is very important to Claire's story as well so without spoiling anything how much can you kind of tell us about that if anything Lisa is a half human, half creature, and she's cautious, but at the same time, she, she, she's a creature, right? But she's still, she's not like brain dead. Right. So that was the thing that she felt lonely and she didn't have friends. And I think she, she could find a friend in Claire. That's kind of like something I can just a little bit tell you. Interesting, interesting. <laughs> something to look forward to. All right. So uh, you get, you had such an incredible, not just a crew, but cast as well for this film. How much did you enjoy working with them? And was there anybody in particular that you really loved having scenes with? I spent a lot of time with Kaya and uh, Avan. It was amazing just to talk to them about the projects they've done, about how they started their careers and get some advice you know it's it's always amazing but especially i spend a lot of time with donald logue i think he's like one of the nicest and the best persons (laughs) in the world (laughs) he was so nice just like i don't i can't even find another word we also had this like fun incident we he took a selfie and he posted it on his social media <laughs> and it was a huge like fire. <laughs> we were supposed to like take it down right away because, you know, the fans and the thing about like fans that like, could make screenshots uh, screenshots and like, and he, like I was full costume, you know, nobody knew about Lisa Trevor back then. So it was like, Oh my God, no. <laughs> so yeah, oh, it was. No. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so we took it- <laughs> 
<laughs> down right away and we figured things out but yeah it was fun <laughs> uh, i love it when that happens <laughs> i know that you know the people behind the scenes don't but that's always fun for all of us speaking of which i always like to ask this question because there's always such interesting answers are there any other film franchises or stories in particular that you'd really love to be a part of in the future mm, i have a lot of them i guess i think john wick oh that would be i can oh. so see that right now oh <laughs> that would be so awesome I don't know, a new version of Spider-Woman. <laughs> oh, she's just throwing that out there, people. You know, because there's been some talk about that. Maybe that might be a good idea. <laughs> that would be very, yeah. very cool. That would be amazing. That would be amazing. I just was like, the Fifth Element uh, has been one of my favorite movies since I was a little girl, so hasn't been remake done. <laughs> I mean, they're remaking everything else. I mean, they might as well remake you know? that too and, and and throw you in there. And and Mila was in that too, wasn't she, if I remember correctly? Yeah, I know. Yeah. There she, you go. Was, there you go. The the Ukraine the ladies of the Ukraine have to stick together, for sure. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, we'll start with Resident Evil. Welcome to Raccoon City. That's gonna be in theaters on November the 24th. And oh, is she going to do an amazing job bringing Lisa Trevor to life. It's Marina Mazepa. Thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was amazing. And the way she brings that character to life. Oh, wait until you see it. Resident Evil, welcome to Raccoon City. Now in theaters from Sony Pictures Entertainment. Once again, thanks to Marina Mazepa for joining me this week to talk about Resident Evil. Welcome to Raccoon City. Up next, I'll give my spoiler-free review of the Hawkeye series and mix in some elements from the press conference that I attended as well. We'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Shay Fontana, writer for DC Superhero Girls, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. The sixth Avengers solo title is finally here. The Hawkeye series has premiered now on Disney+, and I wanted to give my spoiler-free review on the first couple of episodes since they just dropped. I don't want to do any spoilers here. Also, I'm going to drop some nuggets from the Hawkeye press conference that I got to attend with the director and Kevin Feige and members of the cast as well. So I'll drop some little tidbits from that here and there in my review. And one of the things actually that Kevin Feige said that really resonates in this series to me is that Clint Barton is a reluctant hero and a reluctant mentor, and he thought that was really interesting. Plus, one of the huge motivations for doing this was to get more Jeremy Renner, according to Kevin Feige, which, you know, it's hard to argue with that, right? But that's the one thing that really sticks out in the beginning of this series is that reluctant hero and reluctant mentor. Because remember, Clint Barton, Hawkeye's gone through a lot since Endgame. Or, or during Endgame, went through a lot. And you could understand that if anybody wanted to just walk away and have a normal life, he would deserve to be able to do that, right? His, his best friend and his, his partner it, it was, was killed basically right in front of him when he loses Natasha. And you can only imagine how difficult that was. As a matter of fact, wait until you see Rogers the Musical. Wait until you see that in this Hawkeye series if you haven't seen it yet because it's, it's pretty amazing. But imagine being Hawkeye. Imagine being Clint Barton and seeing something like that, what that would actually do to you. So you kind of see him 
in this very weird place where he's still dealing with maybe a little bit of PTSD from what happened, but also just wanting to lead this normal life. And then one thing that he sees gives him pause and he's like, I got to take care of this. I know I wanted to spend this holiday with my kids, with my family, but I have to take care of this. So that's one of the things that's really, really kind of draws him in. And you'll see that when you watch the show. And of course, you've got Haley Steinfeld who plays Kate Bishop. And I got to say, and one of the things they talked about in this press conference was her confidence. And Haley was saying how it really brought out the confidence in her in having to play this character. She kind of had to find that and tap into it because Kate Bishop is a very, very confident character. You already know that going in, but that balance between Kate Bishop and Clint Barton, once they finally do cross paths is very, very interesting. And it creates this very fun dynamic. And it's almost like instantly when you see them together, it's like they kind of need each other. Right. And you really start to see this mentor thing just kind of break out between the two of them. And it's like a, whether you like it or not, you two really do need to be paired up, not just for Kate, but for Clint as well to a certain extent. So, and, and you see that her Kate's family dynamic is a little bit weird. You know, you'll understand why that is when you watch the show. I'm not going to spoil anything for you, but you see what's going on with her mom now in the present day. And you could understand why Kate would be a little bit prickly about that, right? Especially since Jacques Duquesne is involved in this whole thing. So I can call him Jacques. Right. I could do that. Yeah. Yeah. OK. So you you understand why she's a little bit prickly about that. And there's a very fun scene between the two of them in. I believe it's the second episode, actually, which is really, really neat. And just the whole vibe of this show is so fun. And setting it during the holidays is kind of perfect because it creates this different sense of, I don't know, grumpiness for lack of a better way of putting it for, for Clint Barton, for Hawkeye. And that sort of adds to part of the character. And it also adds to some of the humor, believe it or not, when it comes to this series, because there's stuff that like, this shouldn't be funny. Like clearly he's angry. He's frustrated. He just wants to do what he needs to do and get the hell out of there. And it creates these hilarious moments because of the hoops that he has to jump through to get there. But all of this, in the fact that he's facing, you know, maybe some survivor's guilt. Jamie Renner was actually talking about that during the press conference, talking about how he's dealing with that loss and that survivor's guilt with what happened to Natasha and that they do address that in the show, and they absolutely do. And that's something that you'll get to look forward to a little bit later on. But it, th that is one of the things that actually creates some very, very interesting dynamics there. And I got to say that we've seen some really cool stuff in these Disney plus series for Marvel already. And you know that of course they'll spare no expense. There's some pretty amazing action in these first couple of episodes of Hawkeye. And I got to give Haley Seinfeld a lot of credit for jumping right in. I had no doubt that she'd be able to handle herself. She absolutely does. Now she does talk about how they didn't get to fire any actual arrows, which I'm sure was kind of a bummer for her, but apparently Vera Farmiga who plays her mom, on the show is a big archery fan. And that, as she was talking about that during the press conference, said that's one of the reasons that she wanted to join in on the series. And when you can get a top flight actress like Vera Farmiga, you don't argue with that 
you just sort of roll with it, right? And you just you sort of let her come and play in the sandbox. So that's something that you would absolutely want to do. But it's also beautifully shot. You got to give Dries Thomas a lot credit, a lot of credit for that because it's such a beautifully shot show, and the way the angles that they take in the direction. I'm not going to get all like put my director's hat on and act like I know what the hell I'm talking about because I really don't. But it's very visually pleasing when you see how this thing is shot and how how this whole thing sort of is presented to you. It's it's very, very good. And I I will say that you will never have loved Hawkeye more than you will when you watch this series, quite frankly. And it really stands up. If you're stacking these, and it's hard to compare these Marvel series, right? Because they're all so vastly different. But one of the things I love is that this show balances the action, the humor, and puts a really good story in front of you right away. There's no waiting to find out why this is going to be a good story. That was one of the beauty parts about the Loki series, right? Grabs you from the beginning. This is a show that you might not think would grab you from the beginning, but it really, really does in these first couple of episodes and creates a lot of interesting angles and a lot of really fun characters that you're going to want to see, plus Pizza Dog. I mean, how could you not... Love Pizza Dog, right out of the pages of the Matt Fraction story. So I really, really love that. And just the presentation, I mean, so many things that look like they are right out of the comics. And David Aja has a lot to do with that as well, with the character designs there that are clearly from his designs in the comic book series. So if you love the original Hawkeye comic that this is, I'm not going to say it's necessarily based on, but I mean, even if Kevin Feige even referenced it, in the press conference, then yeah, that's that's certainly a part of it. But you could, you, there's so much, and we haven't even talked about Alakwa Cox yet, who's going to be playing Echo on the show. You get a bit of a glimpse of her, I believe it's in episode two, but I'm sure there's so much more to come from that. But I, I just got to say, I loved so much about this Hawkeye series. I had high hopes for it, I'll be honest. And I'm, I'm not saying that I was always the biggest Hawkeye fan you know from the memes that I put on social media that you know I've poked fun on Hawkeye here and there when it comes to the Avengers but so nice to see Jeremy Renner get get a spotlight for Clint Barton and Hawkeye because that's just it it's not just about the hero in this series right we really get to dig into who Clint Barton is and his life not just his life as Hawkeye and how he deals with with having to be Hawkeye. And I say it that way because, again, reluctant hero, reluctant mentor sort of situation. We've seen him put in that position slightly before, but never more than he is now with Kate Bishop. Now, if you're wondering about the whole Young Avengers thing, is that going to happen? Boy, did Haley Steinfeld dodge that question in the in the press conference. So, you know, kind of absolutely not confirming that, but saying how cool it would be sort of thing. So, I mean, I think that that's probably putting the cart before the horse a little bit. Right now, I think you just sit back and enjoy this Hawkeye series. It's it's just, there's a lot of fun things about it, a lot of very interesting characters, and it's set during the holidays. There won't be any argument as to whether or not that this is a Christmas show slash movie. It is a show, but, you know, you, you never argue about whether anything's a Christmas show. So, yes, this is a Christmas show. It's set during the holidays. It's set during the holidays for a reason, too, by the way, because, it, again, it creates some interesting storyline and, and maybe tension, if you want to call it that way, 
in the story as well for, for at least Hawkeye. Anyway, so the Hawkeye series from Marvel Studios on Disney+, Plus, I highly recommend it. I enjoyed it a lot, and I just really think that you're going to enjoy it as well. That's good enough for my spoiler-free review of the Hawkeye series and a little bit of coverage from the Global Press Conference that happened as well. Thanks to the folks at Marvel Studios for letting me attend that. Up next, going to talk about Masters of the Universe Revelation. The second part of that first season is out. Yeah, I'll talk about it next. Also spoiler-free on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, listeners, this is Peter Shinkoda from Daredevil. I play Noble, and you are listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. The power has returned, and it's making a few stops along the way, actually. Masters of the Universe Revelation Part 2 has finally hit Netflix. I was debating on whether or not I wanted to do the spoiler-filled or spoiler-free. And because the show's releasing a little earlier, if this was a Friday show, I'd probably do spoilers. But since it's not, I'm going to do this spoiler-free. Now, I understand now I want to preface this by saying remember I I really enjoyed part one of Masters of the Universe Revelation I just want to put that out there right now but I understand what the criticisms were for it for anybody that didn't like it I don't necessarily agree I don't really agree with you but at least I understood where you're coming from so in this second part do I think that those people are going to be any happier and I'm gonna say no only because the things that you thought were missing from that and the focuses you thought they were using are still not there. And and I and that doesn't bother me, but it might bother a certain subsection of the fan base. So I'm just going to let you know that right now. Is there more Skeletor in the second part? Absolutely. Do we get to see Adam slash He-Man more? Absolutely. But in what capacity? I cannot tell you because, again... I said no spoilers. I know you saw the whole Savage He-Man thing in the trailer. We do get some of that, and that's very, very interesting. And it actually explains a little bit about the power of Grayskull and and how it works and, and what happens when you don't have the sword to combine with it. That is a very interesting little bit. But this is still very much Tila's story. You're still going to get a lot of Tila. You're going to get some very interesting stuff about Adam as well. So it's not like this is a story where Adam is very much pushed to the background. But there is a lot of Tila in this story. And there's a lot of Evil Lynn as well. I think the Evil Lynn part interests me a little bit more than the Tila part. Not that I'm not interested in the Tila part. That is interesting too. But the Evil Lynn part of this story and the revelations therein are very, very interesting. And how it's crafted, I think, is really interesting as well. And a lot of that has to do with Skeletor's relationship and history with Evil Lynn. And we get a little bit of backstory there as well. We do get some very enriching backstory, actually, in this second part for those both of those characters, Tila and Evil Lynn, that really helps to explain some things and, and make some sense of things. There's a lot of guilt in this second part, too, to, to go around. Trust me. And again, I can't tell you who that's for, but you could almost imagine who that's for. But a couple of them, I think, are going to surprise you. What I also find interesting in that Kevin Smith is, of course, the you know showrunner and executive producer and writer of this thing, is that 
I, I, Kevin Smith draws a very interesting parallel here, and I don't know if he did it on purpose or not. I mean, Kevin Smith draws a very interesting parallel between He-Man and Skeletor's relationship and Batman and the Joker's relationship. The argument over the years that the Joker needs Batman, that they almost need each other, that they thrive off of each other, and that without each other they wouldn't exist. That parallel is very much drawn here with Skeletor and He-Man, at least from Skeletor's perspective. And again, I don't know if Kevin did that on purpose, but that's something I really, really picked up on and I thought was interesting. And then there's also a sub-parallel, to me anyway, of the Joker-Harley Quinn relationship when it comes to Skeletor and Evil Lynn. Now, maybe that's me drawing that conclusion, but knowing Kevin Smith and the things that he loves, I can't promise that that wasn't part of the inspiration for how this story unfolded, or it was just a happy accident. One way or the other, that was something that I thought was very, very interesting as well. There's also in this the idea that absolute power corrupts absolutely. You've heard that quote a thousand times, and that's very much brought to the forefront in this story. And it's almost also like a be careful what you wish for type of situation as well. So those two things were really, really strong to me in the second part of this first season of Masters of the Universe Revelation. And I will say this, the the action, especially leading up towards the end of this second part, is really, really ramped up from what it was in the last part. So if you were looking for more action, you're definitely going to get get that. This second part also ties up some loose ends from the first part. There's a couple of very, very surprising elements in this as well. I really like what they did with Duncan and Man-at-Arms and how they kind of drove his part of the story forward as well. And I think that was something I wasn't really expecting. And I'm glad that that we got, even though I, I didn't really know I needed that part of it, actually, until it until it actually happened. So that was really, really cool. And we do get to see some characters pop up that you might not have thought you were going to see again. You get some new characters that pop up as well that you didn't get in the first part. You know, some of them are very much secondary and tertiary characters. But still, if you're a He-Man fan of old and you collected the figures like I did... It's one of those moments where you just kind of point at the screen and, and, and you shout out the character's name and you're just excited that they're there in the first place. Now, I, I now as I gush a little bit here, are there some kind of goofy things that happen in this? Sure. There's a couple of goofy little things. There's a couple of things that are very convenient at the time sort of thing. But it's one of those things where you have to sit down and you have to say to yourself, am I going to let this bug me and ruin it for me? Or am I just going to sit back and enjoy this? And I kind of chose the former. I'm I mean, excuse me, the latter. I, I just decided to kind of let certain things go because you don't have to nitpick every little thing, right? And maybe I'm an apologist because I'm a Masters of the Universe fan of old, and you could use that as a reason to not like this series, and you could also use that as a reason to like this series. And it ramps up the intensity of the original series in which we didn't really have any stakes and there continues to be even greater stakes in this second part of Masters of the Universe Revelation. So the big revelation for you should be if you hated the first part, the second part's probably not going to make you that much happier. But you'll be definitely you'll definitely be sorry if you do not see it through.
is what I'm trying to tell you. And the conclusion, if you want to call it that, that we get in this second part is a very, very interesting and satisfying one and has a pretty epic battle attached to it as well. And some brand new character designs that if you're going to do that, the folks at Powerhouse Animation Studios are the ones to do that for you because once again, they just flat out bring it in this second part of Masters of the Universe Revelation. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Anything that that studio is attached to, I'm watching. I don't care what it is because they just do such a fantastic job with the animations and character designs. It continues to blow me away. So Masters of the Universe Revelation Part 2. If you loved the first part, you're going to be even happier with the second part with some of the stuff that you get. And if you weren't happy with the first part, Give this second part a chance. It might just change your mind. You're probably still going to be angry and banging on your keyboard on social media. But at the same time, I think you'll be happy that you finished it. Just watch the thing and see what happens. That's going to do it for my spoiler-free review of Masters of the Universe Revelation. Up next, got one more review to take care of. How about we talk about Super Crooks? Also from Netflix, the Jupiter's Legacy spinoff. Talk about it next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Julie Nathanson from Far Cry 5, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Focusing on the heroes didn't work. Why not focus on the villains? That is kind of the premise of the Netflix series Super Crooks, the anime series, which is based on the comic, the limited run comic book series from Mark Millar and Lionel Francis Yu. And yeah, this is basically about a group of supervillains, which is, of course, headlined by Johnny Bolt. We get an origin story for him in the very beginning of this series. This is voiced in Japanese and in English, by the way. And basically, yeah, you, you get to see the origins of that villain, but also you get to see basically what happens to him, you know, when he tries to start a new life for himself, for the lack of a better way of putting it. And again, I really don't want to spoil anything in this review, but you've got Johnny Bolt and his girlfriend, Casey, which, you know, she's, you'll find out some surprising things about her as well, but you know, he's got his old group that he runs with and, you know, you get out of prison and you know, what sort of happens with that? Uh, It seems, seems pretty obvious, especially when you're talking about a comic book story, but it's just interesting because she has one idea of how she wants their life to play out and then an entirely different idea presents itself. But all of this kind of centers around not just these little, you know, petty supervillain crimes, you know, for cash grabs, but they're also going after, and this is not a spoiler because it's in the synopsis for the series and we just kind of saw it in the trailer. They're going after a super-powered crime boss. Now, I can tell you that this crime boss is actually called the Bastard, and he's called that... For a reason, because what he can do and the description of how terrible this guy is, is one of those. He's one of those crime bosses. And normally you would say this about crime bosses in any movie, TV series, what have you, is that you don't want to mess with this guy. Well, based on what this guy does, especially the people that cross him, you definitely don't want to mess with this guy. So when Johnny and his crew decide to do just that. You can only imagine, you know, kind of how that goes. But the one thing I will say about this series is that it really is kind of interesting 
in the way that it's presented. It's kind of going for this funky retro sort of, I don't really know how to describe it. Almost like a, like a retro art house type of situation and how it's being presented almost with like a seventies type vibe, but not seventies because it's clearly not set in the seventies, but it's like the vibe of how it's being presented doesn't fit the timeline that it's in. If that really makes sense. And it's just kind of a weird off-center way that this thing is presented. I mean, you see the intro for the show, and then you get into the show, and you're thinking, well, what does that have to do with anything? And and even the character designs don't really lend themselves to that either. So I'm not sure exactly if I was feeling what they were going for presentation-wise with this series. And as far as the anime goes, as far as the animation style, I should say, it's it's okay. It's it's not one of those animation styles where you would ju- where you're just gonna go wow. Like you know, I talked about Masters of the Universe Revelation. I I watch that and I say wow, this is some beautiful animation. It's a great anime. And then I see Super Crooks, and maybe it's because they're going for a little bit more of a retro design that it's gonna look look a little bit different, almost Pokemon esque. If I want to put how the the animation style kind of looks, but not as good as your standard Pokemon series. So it's an okay presentation, and that kind of takes me out of it a little bit as well. Now, as far as the presentation goes, when it comes to like the action sequences and things like that, the action sequences actually come off quite well and are very, very cool. And you, you'll there'll be some names that you recognize if you're a Jupiter's Legacy fan, because that's what this is spun off of. If you're a Jupiter's Legacy fan, you will notice some. You'll recognize some of the names and things as you go along. But it's almost like a you you gave up on Jupiter's Legacy, and then you give me this, and I'm not sure that this is better. If that makes any sense. Now, is it more fun, or at least is it presented that way? Absolutely, because let's face it, Jupiter's Legacy was very dark, was very serious. And maybe took itself a little bit too seriously at times. This is going after the fun factor 100%. And just a, a for lack of a better way of putting it, because this is going to sound stupid, but the, the, the cool factor. These characters are all supposed to have the cool factor. But at the same time, to me, there's going to be some, there's some frustrating moments because you, you're thinking like th- that was a, you know, these guys are idiots. That was a really stupid idea. That was a really stupid thing they did. And then you, you like you're presented with an idea or somebody says something that completely makes sense. And then the other characters do the opposite of that. And sometimes that's funny and that's fun and that works out. But at the same time, when the thing that the one character is presenting is super logical and makes sense. And you're like, yeah, why wouldn't you listen to that person? What they're saying? That's one of the things that frustrated me. It's like, really? You had a chance to listen to this person and you didn't do it, and now look where you're at, sort of thing. Or now look what you've gotten yourself into. Even if it works out in the end, it's it's still frustrating because you think you're dealing with a bunch of idiots that don't really know what they're doing. And long term, does that make you want to keep watching the show? Because maybe you think you know how it's going to turn out. So these 10 episodes, it does take a little bit to get going. I do think that the first episode being a little bit of an origin story for Johnny Bolt actually made sense. So I didn't mind that as much, but they don't give you a whole lot of groundwork 
with some of these other characters, but I do love the fact that you've got a legit villain target that's scary as hell that they're going after, and you understand that this is not going to be an easy thing, and this could go south in a hurry. So, the first season of Super Crooks on Netflix, I don't know if we'll see a second season. I don't know that we'll see any more of this story, because I just don't know if it holds up well enough. But at the same time, it it is a little bit funky. It is a little bit different. I could certainly see how you might have fun with this if you're a fan of anime. If you're just, if you're just a Malar World fan, I think you'll appreciate this, because I am. I just wanted it to be a little bit better. I wanted it to be presented better. I wanted it to be a little bit less... It felt like it was trying too hard at times to be cool. I, I guess this was part of my main problem with it. But the story's not too bad. The writing a little cringy as far as the, as far as the dialogue's concerned. That took me out of it a little bit too. But there are some things to like about Super Crooks. So go ahead, give it a shot. Let me know what you think. Always hit me up on social media. Speaking of which, hey, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks for understanding. Coming up on a Wednesday here, I wanted to get this in before the holiday. Try something different this year. So I hope you and your family have a very happy and safe Thanksgiving. Hopefully, you you know get the start of the Christmas shopping going. And don't forget, you know, our, our sponsor from last week, Coinbase. Go to coinbase.com slash nerdy. Get yourself some free Bitcoin maybe to start off the holiday season. That might help out for you a little bit so you could try that. Also, find out what's going on with us at downandnerdypodcast.com. Follow along on social media as well at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram and at downandnerdy on Facebook. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly, be good to your fellow nerds, and hey, be thankful. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I use my background in journalism and draw on women's life experiences to add to the conversation on topics that matter to fellow feminists like you. Now in its second season, listen to new episodes each month as we explore finding yourself through divorce, battling call-out culture, questioning our ideas about masculinity, and discovering why girls' confidence plummets in their preteens. Guests include Stephanie Kuntz, historian and author of Marriage, a History, April White, author of Divorce Colony, and Loretta Ross, professor on white supremacy and call-out culture at Smith College. Listen to Thread the Needle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.